The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to those expressing them and do not necessarily reflect the OSA Foundation Incorporated or any other group or individual. This podcast may contain dialogue or subject material that could be considered for mature audiences only. All aspects of how you play the game and the OSIP Foundation Incorporated are protected by copyright and other state and federal intellectual property laws. Unauthorized use without the express written consent of the OSIP Foundation Incorporated is strictly prohibited. If you're interested in sponsoring how you play the game, please email us at podcast at osipfoundation.org. Your sponsorship may be tax deductible. It's that time again. No, it's not time to take more allergy medication because tree pollen is a terrible, terrible thing. It's time for How You Play the Game, the official podcast of the Yosef Foundation Incorporated. Yours truly, Jack Furlong, with you as we talk to you about what's going on as far as the world of sportsmanship is concerned. This is the second episode of the month of April. The year is 2021. Thank you so much for being with us. As always, you can check us out online at osipfoundation.org. You can email the show with the address podcast at osipfoundation.org. You can check us out on social media, facebook.com slash osipfoundation, Twitter and Instagram, both at osipfoundation, hashtag how you play the game. Across the way from me on the screen, as always, is the producer engineer of the show, Mr. Sean Ryan. Sean, hello. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm fantastic, other than the allergies, but we just discussed that. Yeah. Uh, we, have, we have such an amazing show for, for everybody today. We got uh, a number of guests here. Uh, so to, to introduce them real quick, first, returning to the show, friend of the show, friend of ours, the vice chairperson of OSIP, uh, complete with uh, very long hair and a brim of a cap that looks like it was mangled. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but Mr. Sean Goff. Sean, welcome. How are you, man? Uh, bless you. How are you guys? Ah, just fantastic. And 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 our, our guest of honor today that I have to give Sean Goff the credit for, uh, this man needs no introduction, and any introduction that I would give would be uh, not enough. You've seen him on TV uh, millions of times in the most important of games in the National Basketball Association. Uh, you currently may see him as a rules analyst for various NBA games. And it is just such a pleasure to have him on the show today, Mr. Steve Javi. Steve, how are you? Thanks so much for being here. Uh, Jack, thanks for having me. And um, I think the only reason why I'm on here today is because uh, Sean Goff is the one who promised me a hat just like his. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, I, I, would, I would get off the thing right now and uh, go buy that hat. Yeah. You got to it just right. Yeah. Had I known, I would have worn another, but it's okay. It's a, well, you know, with, with prime shipping, I think you can get it free shipping and rather quick. So yeah, probably tonight. There you go. So it reminds me of the time that uh, my girlfriend bought me a maroon suit for something and she ordered it at seven in the morning. And by the time she got home from work at three, it was there and it was delivered hand delivered from Manhattan. So Wow. Yeah. So if they can del if if they can deliver a pimp type suit for no apparent reason, you can get that hat. So. And how quickly was that suit returned? Uh, let's see. Uh, can time go backwards? <laughs> Did I need to get in the DeLorean for that? Uh, in fairness, I had it hemmed first, just 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 to make everybody feel happy. But um, yeah, I, well, that's that's a podcast for another time. So. <laughs> Um, Steve, it's, it, I can't, I can't tell you how happy we are to, to have you. And, and again, thanks to Sean for, for setting all this up. Um, you know, we, we, when we found out that we had the opportunity to get you on the show, we were, we were just kind of over the moon and, you know, we, I kind of feel like 
you have the resume to really give us some insight into some of the stuff that we've been kind of going at in, in our mission statement. Um, you know, and, and because I feel, I feel like it, it can be so gray sometimes. The, the average person sometimes doesn't understand it from every point of view. And to have someone with your resume, with your experience uh, in so many different walks of life as well uh, is, is, is so valuable. And as I'm researching, I didn't know this until I was doing the research. You actually started in baseball as first as a, as a pitcher in the Orioles system and then as an umpire uh, at, uh, in the, I think the, the, the Florida State League with our good friend Jerry Lane. Is that correct? No, that's correct. Yeah, Jerry, oh, my gosh, what, an, what a dear friend. And, uh, my gosh, it, like, you're bringing back memory, Jack. But you're right, baseball was my first love playing-wise. And um, I obviously, in my early 20s, after getting released and realizing that I was not good enough to play baseball anymore, um, I, had to, I had to land something in sports because I just, like you guys, are in the sports world, love sports, still do love sports to this day. And I just feel really, really blessed that, you know, I've made a living in sports, you know, after all this. But, yeah, baseball is my first love. But I think basketball, uh, as I went through it in my early 20s, officiating-wise, was just, I hate to say it for you umpires out there, it was a little more exciting for me than standing around on first base, third base, and just waiting and freezing in, in March in Philadelphia going like, oh, my gosh, I have to make a call when? Yeah, you know? yeah. You you basically just described my entire uh, spring right there. Yeah, you know? Right. This and, has and, been a tough spring. Yes, yeah. yes. And and as someone who did watch uh, Jerry Lane last night uh, work his game, uh, he basically was doing that. Even though he was in Dunedin, Florida, he was just standing around waiting to make a call. I think at third base. So, <laughs> right. So there, I, there's real, real quick, Jack. I'll tell you my last game I ever umpired. Um, I'll just throw this in real fast is I came back from the Florida State League after like two and a half years of umpiring in the minor leagues, making really a rash decision. And I quit actually very quickly. Uh, came back and I got a college schedule here in Philadelphia. And as you were talking about springtime in college, that was about that time. And it was like, uh, I guess it was the spring after I left the Florida State League, I should say. So my last game was a game was like 15 to 14. LaSalle University was playing Spring Garden College. It was like 40 degrees, and each team, I think, had 10 errors. Oh. And I truly, truly did this. After the game, I put my ump, I was behind a plate, of course, trying to call as many strikes as I could. <laughs> and it didn't matter. Uh, and I put my umpire gear over in a corner that I'd never use again, made a phone call to the assigner, and said, I think somebody else could use this money more than I could. <laughs> What's funny is I think what you just described is the uh, freshman game that I have tomorrow in Montgomery. So <laughs> my, my varsity game today was canceled for some unknown reason. So I'll just do it all. I'll do a 15-14 game tomorrow just in honor of that. But I don't have the plate tomorrow. So I'll, I'll, I'll just be standing around looking at trees thinking, hey, did I go to Wendy's twice yesterday? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, what's funny is, you know, you talked about that that rash decision to to, to get out, but you know, I, I was when I was reading the, the you know, some of the stories and whatnot, you know, you, one of the stories that I that I really loved was the one where um, you ran a guy. I think it was was Robin Roberts was the coach of that of that time. And, and you ran the guy in, in this game. And then the next day in class at umpire school, everyone gave you a standing ovation. And it was it was just kind of a, a of a surreal story because I got the sense that there were so many different points of view coming from it because on one hand you have 
people who say, you know, don't take any of this from, from these people, you take control of the game, et cetera. And on the other hand, you know, it seems like when you, when you do something like that, when you do have to make decisions that kind of take control of the game, sometimes that comes back to bite you a little bit. I mean, was, was that kind of how you felt during that experience? Uh, during that experience, I had no idea what I was doing. I'll be honest with you. No idea. Um, I went to umpire school. I have to tell you guys, never umpiring a game in my life, never stood behind home plate and didn't know what a stance was for an umpire. I had no idea. All I know is I love baseball, and I figured, let me give umpiring a shot. How hard can it be? Well, right. we all know how hard officiating can be. But it was my very first game. What they did in umpire school, they would assign you uh, three innings you know, for this one game, uh, and then another crew comes in for the next three innings. So you had three crew, one of the finest gentlemen, Robin Roberts was, the finest gentleman I've ever met in my life. God, God rest his soul. The man is just a phenomenal human being. He was the coach. I think it was South Florida. I believe it was South Florida. And I made a call behind home plate. The ball goes out of play. And the runner from like first wanted to score. And I said, no, by rule, you have to go back to third base. And as the runner was running by me, he said a few words to me, which now that I realize an umpire, as an umpire, it, it, it should have, I shouldn't have done nothing really except just yell back at him. Maybe as a basketball official, call a technical foul. Did it warrant an ejection as I sit here now? No, of course it didn't warrant an ejection. I had no idea. But if I was going to call a technical foul in basketball, maybe the only thing I can do in baseball is I'll throw the guy's butt out of the game. <laughs> and I did. And of course, Robin Roberts came to me and Steve, you can't do that. I, well, I didn't. Now I'm shaking in my boots because I have no idea if I did the right thing, the wrong thing. Matter of fact, Robin Roberts went to the guy who was the supervisor at the time of the game, one of the instructors, and I still remember his name, Scott Graham, who was a AAA umpire. And he went to Scott and said, Scott, this guy's got no right to throw him out of the game and he's making a big deal. Right now, I don't know if I've blown my chances to ever become a minor league umpire or not. But when I went back, as you said, Jack, I went back to dinner that night. We're all sitting there as our rules session started that evening. Bill Kinneman, who ran the school, said, you know what? I have an announcement to make. We have our first ejection of the year. And it's by Steve Javi. And everybody starts cheering. And I went, well, this isn't too bad. You, you mess up maybe a little bit. You throw somebody in the game and they cheer for you. That's pretty cool, I said, you know? So I think that was the start of knowing that um, – it was okay to take charge of a game. Um, that doesn't mean you're not you're going to be right all the time. And and then if you're wrong, you wonder why, and you try to curtail, you know, your your temper or your excitement or so on. But I learned that you know what, taking control of the game is what all the good umpires who were there at the time and the guys who were at the school at the time were John McSherry, God rest his soul, Richie Garcia. You know, these guys were big time guys in in baseball, and they were coming telling me, "Goes that's good, you know, way to way to take charge." and but from there you learn and you learn when to throw someone out and when not to, that was not really the time to, I shouldn't have, but I learned from it a lot. Yeah. Do you, do you think that, um, cause I see this all the time in the training of youth umpires and umpires who, who are going through the, the various systems, even at least even at the, the high school level, because the, the program of developing those types of attributes is kind of the same across the board, whether you're at umpire school or, or doing youth games or whatever, would you, would you rather, if, if, there, if you can even compare this, have a situation like yours where you almost go too far, for lack of a better term, and have to then learn to back it off, or the opposite where 
an official in any sport has to learn kind of the hard way, you know, where they, they're going to, they're not going to be able to control the game. And then they have to learn to kind of toughen up from there. Is one better than the other in, in our sports landscape, either at the professional level, at the youth level, wherever? Yeah, Jack, I don't know if one is better than the other. Um, I will say that the personality kind of dictates it. I truly believe that. Mm -hmm. And for me, from my experience and from what my bosses in the past have told me, uh, and I kind of agree with them, it's so much easier to calm somebody down than to try to, you know, get somebody up to, up to snuff or up to that level of like taking charge of the game. You either have it inside of you or you don't have it inside of you. And some people just don't have that nature to like grab the bull by the horns and say, I got it no matter what. And if I make a mistake, I don't care. Where like my old boss, Daryl Garrison, would always, would always like, he would send me films of my technical fouls. And most of the time is because I would call a technical foul after I missed a call and some of you start yelling and I call it a technical foul. And he didn't mind sometimes when I overreacted where he'd say, you know what, you probably shouldn't have called that technical foul that time because this happened and this happened. But he said, I'm okay with that because I can calm you down. He says, there's no doubt, but he says, it's hard to instill in someone that attitude or maybe just that personality of the, someone who wants to take charge. Um, so I think it is probably easier to curtail somebody who has that uh, aggressiveness in him less uh, as opposed to somebody who is less aggressive. I, I see what you're saying, you know, and, and what's, what I think is interesting about that is like in, in one of the articles that we were looking at, uh, I think it was the one in referee magazine, you know, they, they interviewed a couple of people, one of which was your colleague, Joey Crawford, who said, quote, that you were, uh, the only referee that he knew of who exemplified all three qualifications of a master sports official, which are rules, knowledge, play calling, and game management. And, and Crawford claimed he struggled with it due, due to the temper and whatnot. Um, <clears throat> so would that be, do you, I mean, by, by comparison, that seems to be almost exactly what you're saying there. Because we, you know, we all know Crawford's reputation when he was working and, and we saw yours and how, you know, how you went from, like you said, the, you know, the, the possibly with the quick trigger finger, so to speak, to learning how to manage the game and how to deal with those emotions, um, which, which is very important, I think, across the board in all sports and, and at all levels. Would you agree? Yeah, there's, there's no doubt. And first, I want to have a little thing about Joe Crawford. I mean, for him to say that, I know I've read that before, and he has, I've heard, heard him say that before, to me is like the biggest compliment because Joe Crawford is my, one of my main mentors, if not my main mentor in the NBA. And I consider him probably the greatest referee to put on a shirt in the NBA. I mean, when you referee in 50 finals games, I mean, it's just incredible. And the man has this thirst and he just has this um, passion for officiating that is unsurpassed by anybody. And I just, Joe Crawford to me is just an icon of, of officiating sports. But, um, but yeah, you know, he, he's one thing that, one thing that Joe taught me was to be aware of your weaknesses. And one thing Joe knew that his weakness was his temper and he couldn't control it at times. And it got him in trouble. And he knows that it got him in trouble. I first came in as a hothead myself and realized through my mentors that I couldn't keep reacting, uh, acting that way. I mean, I would see working with Joe, I'd see him act that way. And then he would come in the locker room and say, 
don't don't act this way. <laughs> I mean, he was a great teacher. He knew he couldn't control himself at times, but he also knew that he didn't want people he was teaching to act that way that he the way he was acting. Um, so, I mean, I learned after the first couple of years that, is that I had something to prove, I think, to the players and coaches and also to my partners that they would know that when they stepped on the floor that I had their back too. So um, I, I had a lot to prove, but then I think once I calmed down after a number of a couple of years and I realized that, you know what, I think I've proven that point and now I can approach it a little differently. Right. No, I, I understand that. And it's funny that you bring up, um, you know, what you said so nicely about, about, about Joey, you know, the, the one thing I found interesting too, is that, in, and I experienced this as well to a certain degree, um, the, the, the fraternity, the brotherhood, you know, of, of officiating runs very, very deep in your family and, and the connections across the sports. I mean, you mentioned your dad worked Super Bowls, your, your godfather worked the World Series. Um, you know, the Crawford family is in both baseball and basketball. You know, we, we mentioned you worked with Jerry Lane. I mean, is there anything as we kind of transition to certain topic, other topics on sportsmanship that the average person, the average player, coach, parent, fan, media member, et cetera, can learn from the fact that officiating is this, 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 this craft that is, you know, honed so deeply by people of this, this officiating group, this fraternity, um, you know, where, where, you know, the, the, the brothers and sisters in the, in the, in the group are working so diligently at it. And could that, could that soften people or could that provide a different perspective to the people who are so quick to pass judgment on officials or, or, or anything like that in your opinion? Yeah. I think basically what you're saying, Jack, is to get to know the person and not just the shirt. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that's human nature. They, they, if you get to know the person, then it's going to be harder to really go after somebody and criticize them that vehemently at times, if you get to know them. So um, it's funny because um, with, I had this one situation early in my career, and I won't na name the, the radio announcer, but he is always on their telecasts. Um, really, I mean, because I was a young guy, obviously making mistakes, trying to find my way in my profession, always got on me big time. And I know sometimes like even Joe Crawford say, Steve, don't listen to that. Turn the volume off and just watch the game and, you know, critique yourself. But, and this guy was forever on me. Well, probably in that same year, maybe months later, I look, I look around, I'm in church on Sunday. I'm on the road. I went to church on Sunday and I turn around in mass and there he is. He saw me there and I saw him there. And it's funny how from that day on, he wasn't as hard on me as he was in the past. Wow. And I think that is part of what you're saying, Jack, if they would get to know us as people and know that we as dedicated as whether you're a player, coach, or a broadcaster, as you are at your profession, and we're trying to do the best darn job we can, I think there'd be a little more uh, appreciation for that and probably less um, criticizing as, as vehemently as they do. But it's probably the nature of the business. I mean, we know going back from the start of any kind of uh, leagues, whether it be football, basketball, baseball, it's just that these guys want to win so much and they want to blame somebody when they don't. And they think we're out to screw them all the time. And it's like, can I tell you something? That's the furthest thing from my mind. Uh, I mean, because 
those players or coaches aren't that important in my life. Yeah. I'm trying to get plays right. I couldn't, I mean, I hate to say, I could care less about you got 15 points or how many wins you have as a coach. Right. I'm trying to get as many plays right here as an official to be, to be, you know, a, a proficient referee in my, in my job. And that's what I'm trying to do. And, but unfortunately, Jack, it's going to be this way. Um, but the, the funny thing is to go to your point, the people that you do get to know somehow, whether it be in a charity golf event, whether you've been somewhere at, at the uh, Hall of Fame event for somebody else and you get to know somebody, once they get to know that you're a human being that has a voice that you'll have a beer with and talk, all of a sudden your relationship becomes a little better. Yeah. I mean, you, that's, that's, that's the perfect segue. The example I always point to is Vin Scully and Bruce Fremming. Uh, and, and ever since that, that night at the bar, all of the major league umpires would salute Vin Scully at Dodger Stadium because they began to understand that that relationship and it, and and you know they, and Vin was always fair and it was it was it was very beautiful to watch the relationship of how this this god of sports casting so to speak and and the the officials on the field having that mutual respect and you know, we just had a, I think we just had a great example of that too. And it's not getting talked about because of what you just said um, on Sunday night baseball this past week with the, uh, the Braves and the Phillies, there was a controversial call at the plate that went to review and the call stood because they did not have conclusive evidence and the, the media and everything is blowing up and they're, they're yelling at everybody and this, that, the other. And I have to mute everything because I know in my heart, what is, you know, what's happening behind the scenes, but what's not getting talked about is Brian Snitker, the manager of the Braves, who, who's the call went against, um, comes out to the umpires and says, I'm not mad at you. I just want to know how they could make that call. What did they see? <clears throat> Excuse me. What did they see to make that call? And obviously he's coming off as angry and the fans are feeding off of it, et cetera. And maybe he's trying to motivate his team, which is a whole nother psychological story for another podcast and dissertation. But you, I think you're right. Is that we, we need to humanize these people, us, you know, and, and say, we, we, are just trying to do the best we can. We're trying to be the best official. We're trying to start perfect and get better. And, 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 and it's an impossible task. And the more we develop those relationships, the more that we can be humanized uh, and, and whatnot, I, I feel like the more the, the, the general public will begin to understand the nature of that. And maybe that goes beyond sportsmanship. It's just the fact that we are human beings and it, it all kind of ties itself together. Would you agree? Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think, I think Jack, you can take this back. Oh my gosh. Um, for some reason, I guess, officiating, no matter how old you are, uh, it, would, it just brought back to my mind. I had a nephew of mine who was a really good soccer player in high school. And he decided he wanted to try to make some extra money on the side by refereeing youth soccer and he did it for a couple games and he quit because the parents were just so bad yep. of yelling and screaming and i'm sitting there going like what is it with this that these parents would yell and berate a kid who's 18 17 years old he's out there obviously he's not a professional official he's out there giving his time yes he's making a couple dollars but if you didn't have him you might not have the game right and these 
parents, for some reason, take the liberty, and I don't know where they get that from, why they think they can take their liberty, even at these youth games. And you can go even younger than this. You, you've heard things about t-ball games. You've heard stories. And you just say, my gosh. And, and this is, I think, where the kids, as later on as players, they learn it from their parents. I mean, you might even have the best coach around that doesn't say anything, but their parents are they hear their parents berating the other team, berating their officials. Be, and it's almost like, oh, come on. You know, our society's got to just stop with this stuff. They really do. I mean, you're spoiling it for the kids. And at the same time, they probably don't even realize as they're supposed to be parents and raising these kids to be sportsmanlike, you know, and, and they're just doing the exact opposite. And they can't even look in the mirror. Yeah. That's a great point because it's almost like, um, parents are sort of trying to live vicariously through their kids in a way, you know, maybe they got the, maybe their kids are getting a chance to do something that they never really got to do. And they're treating the whole event as just, you know, separate from their family lives. Like it's just like, and it's like a professional sporting event. Um, and to go along with what Jack was saying before um, about, um, or maybe you, Steve about, um, you know, officials being under so much scrutiny you know it's one of the, i feel like it's one of those jobs where no one really notices that you like you when you do a good job it's only when you do when when you make a bad call right that's when people notice right um i often make the parallels to like music production something that's in the background right if there's a wrong note or something doesn't sound right people are so quick to notice that but if it's supposed to, you know, just be part of the background and no one notices anything, then that's when you do the good job, right? So that's the feeling I get from it. Would you say that? Would yeah, you and, I, and I, that's, Sean, that's really a good point. And I think that's part of the reasoning behind, um, I think this in the NBA, when they have this last two minute report thing, which you can see online about the officials and if they were correct in the last two minutes of the game and or overtime, um, you, what you find is that when you look at 90-some percent of the games, nobody's saying a word. But you get that one controversial call a month, maybe, or something like that, and people are all over it going, these guys stink. What's going on? you got to get better officials. You know, they missed this call now. Okay, maybe they had a bad game. Maybe they did miss two or three or four calls in the last couple of minutes, which no official wants to do. But look at the 95% of the other games that you're – you know, you're seeing, you're showing on the last two minute report and they're doing a fine job. You're right. It's Sean. They, they like to jump on any kind of controversy, but guess what? Unfortunately, that's our world, how we change it. I don't know, but you guys are on Twitter and Instagram and all this stuff and all the nasty stuff that's in there is just crazy. It really is. How, how somebody, Jack, I don't know how you're on the Twitter stuff. I was on for maybe a couple times a couple years ago. And I jumped right back off. I'll, I just went, oh, my gosh. It brings I'll, out the worst in people. Yes. Sure. <laughs> I will be completely honest with you, Steve. Um, since about, I don't know, leading up to the last election, I have sworn off all social media and I have not looked back. And it has been a blessing. You know, I, I, I keep it around for business purposes, such as OSIP or other nonprofit stuff, you know, my own work as a musician, stuff like that. You know, it's, it's a necessary evil to promote yourself, which sure. is, again, it's a no, that's another debate. It's the idea of trying to figure out how do you promote your brand and your, and your services and your and nonprofits with these, these altruistic 
missions, okay, but you're also trying to speak softly and carry a big stick. You're trying to kind of, you know, just, you know, I, I, you, you would know this as much as anyone else as, as a deacon, you know, you're just, you're not trying to bring attention to yourself. You know, you're just trying to keep your mouth shut and do the good work. But at the same time, the nature of the beast is such that you have to promote it a certain way sometimes just to get the message. It's kind of like saying, if you want people to come into the church, you got to let them at least know that the church is there. Yeah, right. You know, so so sure. it, that's that's the balance that I search for when it comes to social media. And um, I want to go back real quick when you were talking about the two minute report and whatnot. I think that leads to a great point about what you're doing as as a rules analyst uh, from time to time. You know, you, you which I think is fantastic. I think you know I you see it on NFL games, you see it in NBA games. Um, you don't see it that much in baseball though, and. Mm. And, and I guess the first question I want to ask is, what was the adjustment like for you to get into that gig? Did you did you find it very smooth? Was it comfortable? Or were, were there things that you had to uh, kind of adjust to as, as as you transitioned to that role? Yeah, I um, obviously the, just going on TV and talking about it is kind of, it was kind of new to me. So that's always, and it still is, it still is a transition. I'm, I'm still not... Um, as comfortable as they, you have some of these guys out there are on there all the time. I just try to, I just try to inform and try to educate the the viewers and do the best I can with it. And am I, am I any good at it? Uh, who knows? I, I mean, I, I hope they think I'm all right at it, but um, kudos, first of all, kudos to Mike Pereira, because if it wasn't for Mike Pereira, who's the first one in this field, if he didn't do the job that he did and how eloquent he is, I don't think anybody else would have a job. Uh, in, in that field, but it was a transition because you had to think about, all right, how can I, if, if somebody misses a play, how do I go about saying it without like killing the guy? I mean, cause we hear so many announcers and even some even former officials say, how could he make that call? I mean, guess what? We've all been there. I've been there many times. I've missed so many calls in my career that, you know, I know when I miss a call. So but I don't need somebody just blasting me because I missed it. So I was try I always try to thought of think of a way of like, how do I put it? Um, of like when a person misses a call. Well, what I always like to look at, what I what I try to do is I would always go from the aspect of like if I was watching my own game and that was me on the call, why did I miss that call? If I felt I did I did miss the call. And nine times out of ten it's positioning. Yeah. That's what it is. Nine times out of ten. Now the other ten percent well, we just, you know, you missed a call or you got blocked out, whatever it may be. But the, if you're not in the right position, you're ready the chances of making the right call. Are, obviously, the percentages diminish, as we all know. And so I would try to explain it. The first thing I look at when I'm on a telecast, if a call is debatable or questionable, I look to see where the official is and who and who made the call. Because there are times, even when I was refereeing, we're taught not to call on the other side of the rim in the, as a lead official underneath the basket. All of a sudden, you blow the whistle on the other side of the rim, your chances are diminished because the backboard's in the way, the rim's in the way, other people are in the way, and now you're just guessing on it. And I know as, a, as when I officiated, when I did that, boy, i tell you one thing. I, I was right maybe 20% of the time, and 80% of the time, I got to stay away from that. Yeah. And you learn, and you learn from it. So the transition was difficult because I didn't want to bury a guy, and, but at the same time, my credibility is at stake too if I don't say what I believe is a correct call or an incorrect call. So you have to balance it with your credibility to the to the viewers, 
and to the fans, but also at the same time do it in a way that the official is not going to be able to sit there and go, yeah, I, I never want to see that Javi again. You know, he knows how tough it was. How can he say that about me? But I truly believe that when you're an honest official and we all know that you missed a play, that you can sit there and just say, well, Steve was right. I was correct. But there's a certain way you have to say it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always would always agree. Not only would I agree with that, but, you know, I, I preach sometimes to people when there's a missed call. I say, you know who knows that that call was missed before anybody else? It's the official who made the call. So we don't need the fans to remind the official, you know, and I'm not saying that from, from this point of the analyst, but it more for more from the standpoint of reminding the people who passed the, the judgment. If you think that that official meant to miss that call or is happy that he or she missed that call, you're out of your mind because I bet, you know, at least for me anyway, 99% of the time when I make a call that's wrong, as I'm making the call, I know it's wrong. And I think to myself, I can't just change it. You know, it's not, it's the mechanics don't allow me to change that necessarily, you know, so you kind of just have to live with it. Um, and I think, I, I think that that's really important. And I guess the, the next question that I would follow up with there is, do you feel that maybe the hardest, I, I, like if I'm empathizing with you and I'm putting myself in the role of the former official turned analyst, do you feel that the, what, the, the line that has to get drawn is when you when you when you kind of vulnerably put out what you do and say it's now up to the viewer or the fan to kind of take it from there and I have no control over that and the reason I say that is because like I'll use the example from Sunday night again with uh, the Braves and Phillies I'm watching that I'm I'm going back over the replays you know I'm I'm following on CloseCallSports.com our our sister uh, site and whatnot and 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 I'm saying okay. I understand why Lance Barrett made the call at the plate. And I also understand by the protocol what went into the, that long review to say that the call has to stand. Once you do that, trying to persuade other passionate fans that this is proper protocol and you just kind of have to live with it is very tough because they're so emotionally invested in it. And I have to learn to say, I did my part. I came to the conclusion of what I believe to be true, and I expressed it properly as someone who defends officials. Would you feel that that's kind of similar for you in that you have to say, I did my part, uh, my credibility and my name are, are properly defended, and yet I was true, and, and so on and so forth. And if the, if the viewers and the fans want to continue to do this, I don't have control over that. That's not on me anymore. Yeah, um, I, I yeah I I agree with what you said, Jack. The, the tough part at times is in, in a situation as an analyst is the fact that we then are asked to give our opinion. So not a matter is not sometimes it's not even a matter of explaining what the protocol is and how you go about it, as you just said. You know, okay, he made the call at home plate. Uh, now that now the protocol is going to go to replay and here's what the replay official said. So as an analyst, if you explain that, that's fine. And of course, you're going to have, you say, these fans who are going to disagree, even if it's obvious, they'll disagree because they're they wear their heart on their sleeve all the time. But sometimes as an analyst, then as you explain that the producer and or the the, the person who is the play by play will say, well, Steve, 
what would you call right now if you were the replay guy? Or what would you say? So now that puts you in a little bit of a jar of like, oh, here we go. Yep. After all I've seen, okay, here I, now I have to make my call uh, on the floor, on the floor or on the field. And that can get a little, get a little hairy because sometimes I do want to skirt the issue because it is that tough of a call like it was the other night. And I'll explain, well, here's what they're looking at. Here's what the rule is. And they'll come up with a decision. Well, then all of a sudden you get hit with, well, what do you think it is? And yeah. you go, oh boy, here we go. You know? So sometimes you just, you know what, like anything else, you just, you answer honestly and you just say, well, you know what? If the angles that I have and I see right now, this is, this is the decision I would make. They might not make the same decision because again, we have to remember, officiating also is not objective it's subjective it's subjective to the person who's looking at the call the knowledge of the rules and what they feel in because i could in basketball many a time in reviewing tapes my partners would say it's a blocking foul i might disagree and say it's a charge foul we're looking at the same play and we're both refereeing in the nba paid professional referees so it is a subjective profession regardless yeah yeah, I think the only easy call there is to say uh, I'm gonna just gonna go to the bar and have another and have a beer. I think that's the amen to that. Yeah, the easy call was the last call. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta write that one down because I'm gonna teach that to every cadet who comes in, in our system. Call <laughs> the last call. Uh, we need a beer sponsor for this program. You guys have any ideas? Or <laughs> figure it out. Yeah, exactly. Are we, are we allowed to say? Oh man, no, we have to get them to pay. That's what it is. I think that's I think that's good sportsmanship. Um, speaking of good sportsmanship, you know, as we were preparing for this interview, uh, Sean Goff threw this one at me. And Sean, maybe you, if you'd like to elaborate on this, um, you know, you one, the question that like I'm, I'm reading some of the notes, and the first one that I see is how was sportsmanship introduced to you, Steve? And Sean, maybe you can you can double down on this. Uh, because I think that is such a great question to ask of an official. So, Sean, let me throw it to you first if you have anything you'd like to add to begin. Uh, well, the only thing is um, I'm not sure how, how long have we been talking about sportsmanship as a concept separate from just, you know, playing the game the right way, being a good sport, whatever. Uh, and, of course, you didn't start out as an official. You started out as a player. Um, so yeah, you take it from there. Yeah, uh, all right. I, I, but sport regarding so who taught me sportsmanship? Um, it was actually a hard lesson for me to learn. Believe it or not, um, I had my share of tantrums as a kid, as maybe we all do when we lose a game. Um, I, I still remember my father, and obviously there's number one who taught me sportsmanship. My father on a golf course with me. I got so upset on the golf course. My dad said, I'm never playing with you again until you learn how to control yourself. Um, my coaches would teach me the same thing. If I acted a certain way in the game, they would take me out of the game. I still remember getting thrown out of a game in American Legion baseball. I mean, like an idiot I was because I couldn't control my temper and the guy didn't play me the next game. Um, and so I think we learn it hopefully from our parents, number one, which are the ones that, Sometimes nowadays are tough to learn things from because they're the ones that are losing control of themselves. Uh, and number two, I think it's from your coaches and your mentors. And that's who, that's who taught me that. But I, I had a rough time. I wasn't, um, I was, I've always been competitive, still am today, even at my age, when I play golf or do other things. Um, 
And I, I learned that it took me a while. I think it probably didn't take me into, I bet you I learned even in my thirties uh, when I got into the NBA, because I was still a little too competitive and, and sportsmanship wise. I, I think in my thirties, I, I was probably okay. I probably just maybe had a little temper in there, but um, yeah, I think you learned it from your, your parents, your mentors, the people that bring you up. And when they don't try to teach you the sportsmanship, they're doing a disservice to you as a child, as a kid, because Kids have they they have to learn that. If they don't, then how do we blame the kid when he becomes 20 years old and he's a professional athlete or 25 who somebody never taught him sportsmanship? We can't blame the kid. It's almost like you have to blame the per, the people who are raising him saying, you never taught him this because the kid doesn't know any different. Yeah. Uh, it really isn't. Because I like to say when I was on the floor, uh, when players used to be a little immature with me and say certain things, they go, you know, wait a second. I wouldn't treat you that way. Why would you think you can treat me this way? And every once in a while, you would get a player, not all the time. Every once in a while, you'd get a player stop and think, yeah, you're right. You haven't treated me that way. So therefore, I'll treat you with that same respect, you know, and be more of a, you know, a sportsman-like uh, player. That's, that's beautiful to hear because I think that I, I, I get the sense that our, our, our humanistic reaction is to set up defenses sometimes when we get into those situations and i can speak from personal experience that you know if a coach or a player or anybody's yelling at me while i'm working a game one of my first reactions is fight flight freeze as opposed to saying wait a second i i don't treat you this way so why why are you doing it to me you know and granted, there are certain things where it's like, okay, you really don't want to be addressing fans and yada, yada, yada. You, you know, you're addressing players, you're addressing coaches and, and, and whatnot. Uh, but that's a mindset that I think we can, we can really learn and, and perhaps try and use. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, there's no, it's a mindset that we have to change really too. And I think I'm going to, as you're talking, Jack, especially I'm thinking of umpires in baseball. I used to think umpires would always get even more of a raw deal than I think any other sports official. I really believe that um, because they would say, look at how that umpire reacted. Look at that. But I said, wait a second. Do you understand that that umpire made a call? He wasn't the one that ran into the dugout, start yelling at the manager, right? The manager's the one yelling at him. He's reacting to what, what was being said to him. So if you went out, went out to the umpire with her in a respectful manner, I've never seen an umpire flip his lid when someone just go out there to talk to him. But when you go out there where you had turned backwards, kicking dirt on home plate, yelling and screaming, acting like the jerk that you are, okay, well, how do you expect someone to react to you? What if someone did that to you? What would you do? Just stand there and go, oh, yeah, okay, I'm sorry you feel that way. You know, I mean, yeah. it's, it's not going to happen. So I think the umpires used to always, I would defend them all the way, you know, to the to the to the hill because I'd sit there and say, guys, you don't understand. They're just reacting to how people treat them. As if they treated them with any kind of respect, they would certainly get the respect. But I would say though, it would lend to like a lot less entertainment on some of those old time films with Marty Springstead and Earl Weaver and yeah. all that stuff. They were some of the great ones. I'm telling you. you, they're classics. Oh yeah. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, you, you, and you get the audio of it sometimes too. And you're just looking at it like, Oh my God, what is going <laughs> on between these cats? You know? And but see, here's the thing too, Jack, that's when men were men. And now in this day and age of, 
I don't know what the, I don't, I'll be kind and just say in this day and age of thin skinned people, it's like, even like when I was officiating still, I had coaches call the league office on me right. because they didn't like what I said to them. And then when I would find that out, of course I would find that out because the league office would in turn call me and say, did you say this, this, and this? And I would, we have a conversation. Well, the next time I had the coach during the game, I would go over to him and this would be the last conversation I would ever have with him and say, if you had the guts just to talk to me man to man, instead of calling the league office like a big baby, I mean, I think we would get along a lot better. So since you did call the league office, I think any other conversation you have right now about officiating shouldn't have me involved in it. Just call the league office. Don't even talk to me. <laughs> and it's just, it just bothered the heck out of me. All right. You think you're a big, bad coach in the NBA, but you can't handle the fact that I said something to you. Right. And it's like, what? I mean, holy moly. You're, no, you're right. I mean, it just goes down to the idea that we need to, we need to have, be able to have conversations with each other. You know, I think, I think like we said to baseball umpires, we, we look at the rapport that home plate umpires have with catchers and whatnot, and they work together. They're, in a way, they're on the same team more so than other people because they're both back there with, with gear on, you know, sweating their butts off. And, you know, and, and they're, they know for the most part, I mean, we, we've all seen clips of, you know, the AJ Pruszynski's of the world who will turn around and say to an umpire, give me a ball that you can actually see. And then I'm uh, oh, yeah, get, yeah. get tossed, you know? Um, but for the most, like, I, like I'll, I always go back to, I think it was Richie Garcia who was behind the plate when uh, yes network analyst, John Flaherty made his debut as a catcher. And Richie said to John, how are you? And, and, and John said, I'm nervous. And Richie said, you and I are going to get through this together. And the next thing you know, John has this new respect for, for Richie as a res you know, it goes back to that humanizing thing and whatnot. That, that, makes, it, that makes a world of difference when you can, you know, I, think, I, think of, I think of our friend Jerry Lane. You know, he, he's got that, that sense of humor and that, that, that calm demeanor where he'll have a conversation with anybody over anything. And, you know, and uh, it, it, it just goes to, sh it's, it's a hard thing to learn, but you're absolutely right that when, 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 the, when the defense mechanisms go up, it's because people are yelling and screaming at you and you think that, oh my God, what do I have to do to survive this? And it's, uh, it's not fair in a way, you know? Yeah, no, a couple of good, that was a good thing about Richie Garcia. I mean, that's, that's a professional right there. Yeah. That is somebody who's handling a situation, knowing the situation, and this young kid's nervous and so on. And I, I think a lot more umpires would probably say that to that catcher, and people wouldn't even realize, wow, that's pretty cool. That's really human of the guy to do yeah. it. You yeah. Know? No, I, I, I agree with that. I agree. And there, I'm sure that there are a ton of stories that we don't know that are exactly like that too. And they just, they just don't see the light of day for, for whatever reason. Um, you know, it makes me think like, and, and maybe, you know, maybe you can speak to this from your experience, but I, you know, you hear the stories of um, officials and coaches who appear to be having the argument on, on the field or on the court for the purposes of either the entertainment value or the firing up of players and whatnot. And then as soon as the game is over, you know, they're, they're proverbially at the bar together. You know, I remember talking with um, retired MLB um, Dale Scott, who told me a story about, I think he was with uh, Terry Collins when Terry was managing the Angels and he had to run him, but it was because 
he said like, you know, I need you to run me because I got, I can't watch this anymore. And he's doing the whole, you know, the, the gesticulating and whatnot. And then he says something to, to Dale. He goes, Dale, I feel sorry for you. Cause you got to stay out here for the rest of this game and watch this garbage. And I get to go back in the clubhouse and you, you would have <laughs> right. no idea that that occurred if it weren't for that story and that Terry was never mad at Dale, you know, he was mad at his own players and, and, but the story didn't make the light of day until that was told. I mean, have you, have you, can you share anything like that? Or can you at least comment on that type of experience? Yeah. And I think Terry Collins, as a matter of fact, just talking to a lot of umpires is very well respected because of that too. I mean, because of situations like that, Jack, mm -hmm. he was a guy that, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be, just out there for the sake of being out there, you know, like berating the umpire. And we have the same thing in the NBA too, with regard to coaches who, who will come out and top of my head, Greg Popovich was a great guy. He'd come out and he'd be upset and he'd be saying something and he goes, I'm not upset at you. I'm just upset at my players and so on and so forth. And I said, yeah, but Greg, but Greg, 18,000 people are booing me right now. So please walk away. <laughs> you know that, uh, um, uh, but and I even had a situation with uh, Thibodeau, um, who I don't think I would like to. I would. I think he's a heck of a guy. I really do, and a heck of a coach. Yeah. Um, but I would like to see what his normal talking voice is, because I think his normal talking voice is ten times uh, ten ten octaves higher than anybody else. And there were times I'd go over to the um, table and he'd be yelling. You could hear him yelling, but he's kind of talked to me as he goes, "Tibbs, you, you got to calm down here. Everybody thinks you're yelling." He goes, but I'm not yelling at you, Steve. I'm just talking to you. And, but it's, it's so funny. Certain guys you can really, you really respect. You really do. Um, but then again, you know, just on the other side of the coin, there are other guys who don't really care about the officials in the way that some of the, like Terry Collins, Greg Popovich, you know, Tom Thibodeau, like they do. Um, it's really, and I know you guys know this too, as an official, it's great to have a coach like that because you respect them. Yeah. And that doesn't mean like I've thrown Greg Popovich out of games. I've given Thibodeau, you know, technical fouls. That doesn't mean we don't respect each other. We do. But at the same time, we understand that it's a game. Certain things are going to happen and certain uh, situations will present itself where you have to take uh, action. That's all. Do you, do you think that um, sportsmanship can be tossed in or tossed can, can be taught in in that manner because I, I wonder sometimes what your take on the value of the technical foul is you know you mentioned that game things are going to happen in games and that's and that's part of the nature you know um do, do you find that to be uh valuable for you know for, for the teaching purposes or for enforcing sportsmanship or at the very least letting that filter down to the younger levels or the viewers who are watching this, or is there value to that? Or, I mean, what, what is your take on that? Uh, I, I, as opposed to Jack, and I think if, if you could say the question again, I'm sorry about that, yeah. but if you could, are you, are you saying the value of a technical fouls as um, opposed to say, just like in baseball, you have an ejection. I guess you could say that too. I know like, for example, in, in high school baseball, we have the restriction to the bench, which is kind of the seatbelt first technical foul rule that they put in to, to basically tell the coach, you know, I'm not ejecting you, but you can't leave the bench area for the remainder of the game. No paperwork, no further suspension, et cetera. Um, it's a shame that in my opinion, it has to come to that at the, at the high school level, because I'd like to believe that the coaches understand their roles as 
teachers to these student athletes, but I, like, like we've talked about, I understand the desire to win and, and, and all that stuff. Do you feel that something like that, which to me kind of translates to that first technical foul can have value in teaching it? Or do you think that it's, you know, it's being abused? I mean, I, I, I don't know where to fall on it myself. And, and I feel yeah. like you're the, the person to ask. Yeah. Um, I, you know, and, and, and listening to you put it that way, it's almost like now, now with the replay review and baseball, it's, it, it changes the game totally with regard to, you know, arguments and so on. It really does. Um, but I, I do think that that rule that you just described to me in high school is really a kind of an, I kind of like it. I mean, right, right off the get go, as you're describing it, because it doesn't, because we're all competitive. We get to a certain level, we're all competitive. And there are times we're going to lose, you know, our, our emotions. And as long as the emotion isn't so drastic, where in basketball, we say, okay, technical foul. Now, in basketball, you don't, you don't have to stay around for that second technical foul. That emotional outburst could be enough that you reject it on one. Okay. Very similar to an ejection in baseball. Uh, but nine times out of ten, the emotional, little emotional outburst warrants that technical foul to say, get your emotions under control. It's unacceptable for you to you know, act this way. And if you don't, you know, then the second technical foul will mean ejection. I kind of like that rule in high school where if a coach does get out of control a little bit, not to the extent where it warranted an ejection, but you're saying to him, hey, look, that's too much. I'm not throwing you for it, but if you do it again, I will throw you for it. I, like, I really do like that. I think it does – it allows the mature person to hopefully get himself under control and go, all right, you're right, all right, I'm glad I'm still in the game. You know, yeah. unless he said the magic words, which then he would be ejected and he knows he'll be ejected for that. Yeah. But short of that, I think it's a good thing. I think it does. I think the technical foul, it does work. And I think also it works. You know how coaches, you were just saying before about coaches use it to protect their team or their stars. We used to always say with, um, with Greg Popovich, um, when you ever saw Tim Duncan with a technical foul, Popovich would have one too because he wouldn't go on Duncan to get a second one. Right. He would rather have himself get one and take the attention away from Tim Duncan. It seemed to be. I'm just saying this. You would have to ask Greg Popovich if he did that intentionally. But to me, it was pretty smart on his part to get the you know attention away from his superstar, which he wants to stay in the game. And Popovich wouldn't care if he was ejected. That right. kind of stuff. Or got a technical foul. Right. Now, now that it brings up an interesting point that I that I want to ask because you see that I think in sports across the board. Okay, we see that in baseball all the time, too, you know, where a coach runs out to protect a player and get the player away. And if the coach has to go, he'll, he'll, he'll gladly go so that the player stays in the game. Do you think that, I mean, from, from the standpoint of the game and, and the management of the game, it makes total sense because the manager or the coach isn't playing the game. It's the superstars who are playing the game and it's the superstars who everyone's coming out to see. So there's an economic side to it, et cetera. Do you think that there is something for the lack of a better term, almost wrong with that because we're not teaching those, those, these adults not to act a certain way, you know, it's almost like tough love in a weird way, you know, I always, I would say when I would coach, I would say, I would say to some of the officials, I would be like, I'm not coming out to protect my player. You want to toss him, toss him. He's got to learn, you know? 
Do you think that that's kind of backwards at the professional level, or do we just as a society have to accept that because of the value of the entertainment and the sport, that's just how it's going to be, and we can't change that? I'm looking at it in a different way. Um, Number one, I think it's good at the younger level to to do what you're saying, Jack, about let let them learn self-control if they can and some kind of sportsmanship. When you get to the professional level, I think, believe it or not, uh, the thing I thought about as you're asking this question and setting a scenario, I thought about job security and money. I really did. Interesting. I I want to know more about that. That super, that superstar is the one who's going to win games for that manager or coach. And that coach is his salary is dependent upon how many wins and losses. So if I can get as many wins, and that means two more wins in a year or three more wins, and I get to the playoffs, that's security for my job. So he's actually thinking it for himself, too, of saying, I'm protecting not only the team, I'm protecting my job, too. So I think the idea in his mind of teaching sportsmanship is thrown out the window at the professional level. I I think that he figures um, that if the guy hasn't learned it by now, I'm not going to be the one to teach him, but I'm going to have to try to be the one to keep him in the game because it's going to keep my job, and, and we go from there. That I, I never would have thought of that. So that, that is amazing. I learned, I learned that today. That is, I, I am so glad to hear that because, it, it, see, when I hear that, to, to be given a new slant on that, I don't know how it changes my opinion yet, but I do know that that information is so new and so important to it that, it creates, at least for me, a, sen- a new sense of empathy that I think does speak to sportsmanship in a certain way, because you're yeah. saying, now, wait a second, now I understand this a little bit more. Even if I don't agree with it, I see where your heart's at, I see where your mind's at, and, and I can respect that. And that, mm-hmm. that speaks to sportsmanship. Yeah. You know? So, so that, that, is, that is absolutely amazing to, 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 to think that. Um, can I interject for a second? Please. Yeah. I was going to ask about trash talking related to that. You know, a lot of basketball players, they almost, I think, enjoy it. It's like a sport in itself. But from our standpoint, as a sportsmanship organization, it's not like we want to go say, hey, you know, you should learn how to trash talk. Have a good time. Like, so, uh, and yet it's part of the game, you know? So where, where do you draw the line with that yourself? Yeah, I, um, that's, that's good. That's a good question and observation, Sean. I think... And I, I have to give kudos to the NBA for this. Um, when I was early in my career, you're right about trash talking. I mean, one of the best games I ever heard, I was refereeing Chuck Person and Larry Bird one after each other. And it was just, I mean, it, I wish they had the microphones on both of them. Maybe some games <laughs> they did, but Larry Bird was just so good. I mean, he was incredible. And he just sit there and you go, oh my gosh, you know? But what happened, it, it just like, just like our environment in our world, I really believe sports are just a microcosm of our society. Um, the trash talking back then was taking as a, a different, totally different way than it is now. The trash talking back then was if a guy got you good on the trash talk, you would sit there and probably run down the court and go, you son of a gun. You, yeah, you're right. You got me. But then if you did something to him, you could come back and he'd go, oh, yeah, you got it wasn't it wasn't harmful. It was actually playful and funny. And, uh, but then all of a sudden, as society changed, the sports world changed, where it became more of a threatening thing. Like, if you said that, 
you're um, you're questioning my manhood, or you're quite you're you're disrespecting me and all. And it wasn't meant to be that way. So the trash talking in the beginning was kind of fun. It really was, but it got to the point where it then would start the the this tension, and the tension then could lead to possible altercations on the floor. And I think this is where the NBA was really good when they said, "Hey." No more trash talking. It's a technical foul where they call for taunting. You know, we call that now taunting. And I know some of the announcers and all don't like that at all. And it's like, yeah, but you don't understand the players are so different nowadays than they were 20 years ago, where it wouldn't have been taunting 20 years ago. You had guys dunking and standing over you because know what you would do next time? You would dunk and stand over them. And that was, you know what? Okay, fine. And there wouldn't be no fights. But for some reason, as the society chain could be could the maybe maturity or immaturity of players um the immaturity of players couldn't handle that they couldn't handle someone taking a shot at their pride or their ego and they wanted to lash back and fight maybe and that's what i think the league saw and the league jumped on that pretty quickly when i was in there with regard to taunting and it actually it made our job a lot easier as officials Someone says something taunts on bang hit him with a technical foul and it did two things it stopped the taunting and it didn't lead to any other altercations, which is really good. No, that's 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 incredibly important, I think, because of the, like you said, the, the changing of of the culture. And you know, we we've we've debated this, I think, internally a lot. You know, because I think trash talking does have, like you said, there's there there is a, um, a, a, a place for it, for lack of a better term, maybe the change has to be in the etymology of the, of the term because it comes off so negative, you know, guys on the playground, so to speak, can, can tease each other with what I always call good natured ribbing, you know, and, and I've always used the line of demarcation to say good natured ribbing is fine. It's when it gets re it gets, goes past that, that it gets to be really, really unfortunate and inappropriate, you know, and and that's that seems to be, you know, where where we can't find that now, you know, we we have become uh, much more sensitive to it, and and it's I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong because I think sensitivity can be a good thing in a lot of places, but it's almost like a pendulum that swings too far to the other side due to the fact that it was too far over here when it really just needs to be in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes you have to swing that pendulum to that far to the other side to get the middle. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt. And, and you hope you get the middle. Yeah. That kind of stuff, you know, and, and even like, I mean, simple things of like uh, fouls now in the NBA. Um, years ago, they were just, and I think I made a comment the other night on, on the TV is like when I was in the league, the guy who went in the first row with a foul was a common foul. Yeah. Well, it was more than a common foul. There's no doubt, but the, the pendulum was so far left. It's like everything was just a normal foul. Now the pendulum swung the other way where let's look at that. Is that a flagrant foul? Oh, all right, you're looking at it, but that's really not a flagrant foul. But I guess what we're trying to do is to get somewhere, like you said, Jack, in the middle. You yeah. know, and I think, I think that's what leagues are always trying to do, is trying to, when the pendulum gets so far one side, they got to almost go so far the other side. I mean, the NBA did that with what they called the respect for the game uh, rules. They started putting in 20 years ago about players reacting to calls and react. People weren't the people watching the fans weren't liking the way the, the uh, players were reacting to officials. And matter of fact, I think it's really since we were, were we were in the bubble last year and now you're at it. I think the players reactions in the bubble 
were, boy, I know one thing, I'd have a hard time keeping my composure uh, of like the way players reacted. And I know the situations and the circumstances were different and unique, but guess what? It's different and unique for me too, as an official. Mm -hmm. And we had referees who were 90 days in that bubble without seeing family or friends too. Um, so, I mean, we all had to try to get together. I mean, so it's not like just players or not like just the coaches. You got to think of everybody. So and I think that, um, hopefully the pendulum swings back a little bit more towards the middle with the way the NBA and the players are reacting to officials. Because in my opinion now, I think it's gone a little too far to the left again of like they're letting too much go, right? Uh, like reaction, you know, and I yeah. think we got to swing it back. Yeah, yeah, that, that window of tolerance is changing through, you know, nobody's fault. It's the, it's the situation that we find ourselves in, in which we find ourselves, so I use proper grammar. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's tough. You know, I, I, I frequently have to tell people all the time, you got, you know, it's hard to remember empathy right now. We're all going to struggle with this because of these circumstances and that's okay. You know, we got to We got to get through this together. Um, I want to switch gears, uh, quickly because there's another great topic here that, uh, you know, we, we would be remiss if we didn't discuss it. You are an ordained deacon now. Uh, first of all, congratulations. That is an amazing accomplishment. How has that been going for you? Uh, it's, it's, in, Jack, it's incredible. I, I probably, it's probably indescribable. Um, nothing, I mean, this is something, uh, as people in ministry know, it's a calling and it's not something you aspire. I mean, I never, um, I never knew what a deacon did, uh, prior to checking it out. Obviously after I felt I was called. I knew that I wanted to do something to serve the Lord and my creator because he's blessed me in my life with so many great things that I just feel that it's only the right thing for me to do personally. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we all have our stuff that happen in lives. There's everybody, nobody gets through this world unscathed. Um, but all in all, he's just provided for me and in every which way. And I just felt that I knew that I wanted to leave this world um, a little bit better, but also I wanted to leave this world not, not being known as a person who blew whistles on basketball players. Right. So that's, to me, that's nothing. I was blessed to be able to do that. And I think I said earlier that to make a living in sports, it was like, if you were to tell me that at 15 years old, I'd sit there and say, that's fantastic. Um, but there's more to life than just blowing a whistle and calling a foul or calling it out of bounds or, you know, putting a shirt on and, you know, being on TV with ESPN, who cares? I mean, that's a means to an end. It just so happens that I did something I enjoyed. But um, it was Although a... ejecting the mascot was pretty good. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I wouldn't get through this podcast without oh, something man. like that. That's true. And I, you know what? Let's go back to that, Sean, after this, yeah. because I'll tell you the real story. Now that I'm retired, I can tell you the real story. Oh, I can't wait. I oh, can't wait. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you the real story. Actually, I told it at my retirement dinner. It's funny. Ten years ago. I can't believe I'm retired. Ten years this coming uh, spring. Um, but I, I finally told it at my retirement dinner. And like people were like, ah, oh, because everybody thinks like I'm the, the biggest jerk in the world throwing out a mascot. I mean, here's this guy who looked like a basketball hoop, you know? I felt sorry for the guy. You know, maybe get out of that uniform, get another yeah. uniform. You know? <laughs> right. But um, but no, getting back to the the, the diaconate, um, after I retired, um, and obviously I retired because I hurt myself. I mean, I couldn't run run anymore. Um, as, as I said, I wanted to serve the Lord in, in prayer. And like 
in prayer, basically just, I pray every day. I have a prayer chair at home and I, I talk to the Lord, like I'm talking to you guys, like help me out here. I need, you know what, it's going to be a tough day or help me, you know, and then I ask him for, you know, prayers for my people who need prayers for and people who are sick or ill or dying. Um, and I just ask him to lead me in a direction that where I can serve you and your church. And he led me down this path and it was seven years in formation of going through this seminary in Philadelphia. Um, I never was a great student before because I never applied myself. I applied myself on the baseball field. That's about it. Um, and, but this time I wanted to learn more about my faith and I wanted to learn more about the church and what the teachings of Christ. And it all made sense to me mm -hmm. and putting, as my pastor said, just put one foot in front of the other. This is where he's calling you. He'll complete it. If it's not, then he'll put you, point you in another direction. And read up into ordination, and I'll never forget, obviously, ordination, which was in 2019 of June. Um, I still remember my wife, the morning of ordination, waking up, and she goes, because you're never really sure. I mean, are you, I mean, how, how are you sure about this? Um, and she says, are you sure now? Here's the morning of ordination. Are you sure now? And I said, no, I'm still not sure. <laughs> I wasn't sure until I was walking down the aisle of the cathedral in Philadelphia, with my six other classmates and I'm just looking up at the crucifix. And I just said, well, I guess this is what you want from me yeah. because I'm walking one foot in front of the other. And, and I was ordained that, uh, you know, that day. And it's, let's put it this way. I had a, a great life in sports. I officiated all the great starting with Dr. J as my, my first year was Dr. J's last year, you know, with bird and magic and Kobe and Michael and LeBron, all the great players, you can name them. Um, and I loved it. I don't give me, I had, I had a great career and I loved it. I really did, but I've never been as totally fulfilled as I am right now. I mean, there was something missing in my life that, yeah, I like that, but there was always something pulling my heart for something more. Right. And this is the something more. Does it mean I love sports any less? No, but it does it mean I prioritize it in a different way. Yes, that it does. Sense. That makes and sense. So that's, that's the difference. I did. My priorities are a lot different. Um, my parish is phenomenal. I have a pastor who's like one of my best friends. He's an 83, almost an 83-year-old pastor who runs the largest parish in the archdiocese. Wow. We have over 20,000 members in our parish. And it is just so full of the Holy Spirit. And the, these are the people that got me. I mean, I looked at the men in our parish and how full of the Spirit they were. And they actually, they, they're part of my faith journey. They're the ones who encourage me to continue my formation and so on. So Thank you for asking, Jack. It's it's been something, as I said, is indescribable. But I just I know that the Lord pulls at everybody's heart, and if we just get out of our comfort zone, because sometimes, especially with men, men have a hard time talking about their faith at times, and so on. Women are a little easier to do. But it's funny in my golf course where I play, when I was in formation, it gave people permission, my buddies permission, to talk about their faith. Some good, some bad, but. It gave everybody permission to say, hey, Jav, can I talk to you about this? Or, what's going on with this? And what's the church teach this? And I didn't have all the answers. I mean, sometimes I'd agree with them, you know, there's no doubt. But, but it's just, I think we as men have to let our guard down and almost let the Holy Spirit, let the Lord give us his grace so we can, you know, feel his grace and know that it's okay to be a lover of the Lord and at the same time a lover of sports. They're not mutually exclusive. They really aren't. It's just prioritizing who's number one or what's number one in your life. And when you make him the Lord number one in your life, everything becomes, becomes, you know, flows from there. Doesn't mean you're not going to have suffering and pain and sorrow in your life, but it means that you have someone there who's going to help you during those times. And 
like I said to me, I want, it's funny, I want everybody to feel the way I do about the Lord because I thank the Lord that he came into my life even at a later age, even though I had my faith, but not to this extent. And I just talked to a group the other night, it's funny, at the University of Massachusetts uh, on, a, on a Zoom call. And I just commended these young students at 18, 19, 20 years old who are feeling the Lord in their life. And I said, I wish I had that at your age, but I'm so glad I started at my age now. And I want that for everybody. I really do. I guess that leads me to my next question. What's it going to take for me to get on the golf course with you to talk about my faith? Because I'm ha I'm partly embarrassed. You're already a better golfer than me because I I strike I rack up strokes like the more the more strokes the better, you know. Because because Sean Sean Ryan will attest to this. Um, you're supposed to pick up the ball after double par on each hole. And Sean, what was my was I in four digits the other day when we played five digits strokes? Sure. Sure. <laughs> well, we have, we have a rule. If you hit the golf cart in front of us, uh, you get automatic par. So. That's the greatest <laughs> rule ever. Well, first of all, Jack, I'll play golf with you anytime. And I, a quick, quick little story about being called to the diaconate. When I felt the calling after somebody was preaching to us uh, at our parish, I went to my pastor and I said, boy, I, said, I think this is, where the Lord's calling me to become a deacon, but I'm not sure and all this. And he goes, you know, just reassuring me, take, you know, take your time. I'll try this. He goes, I said, but you understand, I've got a problem. My pastor kind of looked at me and you can imagine like, we well, got a problem. Like, what, what's your problem? I said, I love golf and I love light beer. And he said, well, do you embarrass yourself? I go on a golf course. I do. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'd be more than happy but I tell you one thing: we're gonna to have to have the cooler full of beers. If we're gonna sit there and hit golf carts, I'm gonna drink a few beers. That, <laughs> this is me arguing. Watch. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, I'll be the caddy and I'll bring the hats. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's what that's what I'll finally get my hat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god um i was but, gonna dress as the mascot but i didn't know the uniform oh <laughs> that okay you wanted to get into the mascot yes, now, give right? us the story yeah. give us the story okay all right so you have to understand i'm a really young crew chief at the time i think um at the time the crew the crew that i was on and i still remember it was billy spooner and donnie vaden and myself i don't think we equal 10 years in experience this is right as they went to a three-man system, maybe a, a couple of years after that. So maybe 10 years for all three of us. It's, yeah, and this it's was funny. the 80s, right? What's that? This is like the 80s? Um, this is probably like early 90s. This is like probably 91, 92, something like that. Think, okay. You know, yeah. Because uh, no. I got hired in 86. The two-man system was 88. And early, probably around 1991, somewhere around there. I think 1991. Um, I had to look it up, sure. Um, just want to see. Okay, okay. Just want to make sure you guys weren't frozen on me. Um, so it's a game in, down in Washington. And, of course, the first 45 minutes of the game go great. No big deal. And nine, nine times out of ten, as an official, you know, I used to hear stories. Anybody can work the first 45. It's like the last three. Well, we have a situation where uh, we've – going down the other end and Purvis Ellison, which you remember him, never nervous Purvis, right? <laughs> yeah. From Louisville. Um, 
he um yeah he he goes on fast break he gets called for a foul or something and he takes the ball and he's in the backcourt and i see this but he throws it and my partner actually catches it i mean it was really a pretty hard throw and my partner catches it and puts it down and i'm like that's got to be a technical foul i mean you have to and as i'm getting closer to the play i'm going no you throw the ball in the official even though he caught it i'm throwing his butt out of the game so if I had to do it all over again, I probably would have called just a technical foul, to be honest. But but my being young and experienced, and I threw him out of the game. And so now, here comes one of his players, Darrell Walker, who he and I never got along, and I throw him out of the game. And then now, Wes Unsold, who might be one of the nicest men you ever want to meet in your life, intimidating, but very nice, he comes onto the floor, and I throw him out of the game. So on this one call, which if I even didn't call anything, the game probably would have went on and everything would have been fine. But now I have three ejections and six technical fouls, okay? Of course, we have a timeout, which it always happens you have a timeout, and it gives the fans a chance to just go crazy on you. Well, of course, my partners didn't want to stand anywhere near me, and they're at the other end of the floor, and I don't blame them. And so now I see Donnie Vay call me down the end of there on the floor. I said, Steve, come here. I come down. He said, the mascot is behind you, and he's making fun of you. And I said, okay, fine. So now I have, I have to think during this timeout. All right, I've already ejected a coach and two players. I might have lost my job. I said, because how bad a job I'm doing here. So I'm going to go over to the scores table here, and as I get a drink of water, I see the guy who is the PR guy, who I know, young guy at the time, still there, as a matter of fact. And I said to him, I said, hey, Dolph, do me a favor. Tell the mascot he's got to stay off the floor the rest of the night, okay? Just please do that for me, because I don't want to get involved. Steve, I'll take care of it for you. Great, thanks, Dolph. As I turn around to get a drink of water, the fans are going nuts. And I'm going like, what happened here? Well, I look, and Dolph's on the floor saying, he just told me that he's out of the game. He's ejected from the game. Get him off the floor, and he gets security to escort him off the floor. And as I'm sitting there taking my drink of water, I just went like, oh, my gosh. How do I explain this in my game report? I mean, this is crazy. I said, oh, my gosh. And so now the fans are going nuts. And after the game, I'm just sitting there. And this is before any kind of internet, of course, and email. I had to write up this game report. I mean, it was, it took me all night and then you have to report it by then. It was by, I think some kind of like, you had to call in some number, an 800 number and explain everything that happened. I don't think I got any sleep that night. All I know is um, it's all over sports center. It's gone crazy. My mentor, Joey Crawford calls me up. I'll never forget this. He calls me up and he said, this might be the greatest thing that ever happened to you. I said, <laughs> What are you crazy? I said, I might lose my job with all this stuff. I ejected a coach, two players, and now a mascot. They said, <laughs> No, he says, Steve, I'm telling you, the players are going to think you're the craziest son of a gun in the world and they're going to come near you anymore. And he said, This could be great for you. And I'm, I, I just couldn't see that happening until the very next night. I'm working a game in Indianapolis, back to back game. And I'm standing there during the pregame as their layups, their warm-up lines, and so on and so forth. And I'm just standing there watching. And Reggie Miller and I catch eye contact. And he mouthed to me, he said, 
the mascot? It's like that. <laughs> and I, I, I kind of shrugged. And then I went, maybe Joey Crawford's right. Maybe they'll think I'm really crazy and won't say anything to me. So that's kind of the mascot story. I never ejected the mascot. He was just supposed to casually get off the floor. And then all of a sudden, all this hell broke loose, you know? So, gosh, that, crazy. That's That, that sounds so... Um... Seinfeldian, Costanzian, if you will. Yeah, just, yeah. Just, right, right. The exactly. mascot, you know, the, <laughs> yeah. the Mahatma, you know, just oh my god. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. I love it. I love it. Oh my god. That I might have to start telling that story now too when people ask me. I'm like, this isn't even my story. I got, I got, I got to write Steve Javi a check for royalties every time I tell this story at the bar. Now. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, um, Steve. Before we let you go, I want to uh, make sure I give a plug. Uh, and give you plenty of time to talk about your charity and your foundation. Uh, please give us give us every information about it, all the good stuff that you do. I was researching it, and I feel like I won't do it justice. I need to give you the floor to to tell us about your foundation and, and all the good work that you do. Jack, I appreciate that. Um, what we've done recently it was it was called is called the Javi Foundation for Charity. It has now been put on hold a little bit because we've taken our uh, efforts elsewhere, and I'll explain that. But the Javi Foundation for Charity it was in existence for about 12 years. Um, we donated back to our, our community. And I say this because I'm just proud of the people who support it. It's not me, but everybody needs a vehicle to support. All right. We were, I'm just so blessed. I have so many friends that want to help out. And I think we all do. We all know that even in this day and age of Twitter, of social media, there are so many more good people out there. It's incredible. And for some reason, we want to be led to believe that there is this world is horrible, people are awful. No, 95%, 99% of people are really good people. And through our foundation, we found out that we knew that because they were just so helpful in our efforts to raise money for local charities that needed money. They really did. And in 12 years, we've don we donated back to our, um, our community over a million dollars. And it's like I said, it's because of the help of the people who want to give they just need a vehicle to give to. And we were that vehicle for a while. Since then, we took our, um, our efforts into, when I, we moved from a, one area of our city to another area of the city. And my wife and I, uh, she was president of this organization called the Legacy of Life Foundation. And it's a women's center that helped women who are in crisis pregnancies to help not only save the life of the baby, but also to administer to the women who need the help also who are going to be the mothers of these children. And this group, this Legacy of Life group does that with so many different programs of even hopefully counseling the person and know that they do have a choice. Their, their only choice isn't Planned Parenthood and aborting the baby. That's not the only choice. What are your objections? And they answer the objections, whether it be money, place to stay. And this organization provides everything for three years from the time they're pregnant till three years after the birth of their child, they'll provide help and assistance for these women to get them back on their feet, to provide for them and their babies. And it's just an incredible ministry that these women are involved in. Like I said, my wife was president for like 10 years. And I'm telling you, you talk about being humbled, thinking that you're doing something good in your world. And you see these women counseling these women who are really in crisis. They are. And they don't know where to turn. But society says it's okay to kill your own. And I'm sorry to say that it really had bothered me more than anything else. And so I, um, I let, put the foundation aside. 
I don't know whether we'll get back to that for now, but right now we're putting our, more of our efforts into this. And quite frankly, the, the, the work that these women are doing, counseling and providing, uh, in the past, they basically saved almost a baby a day at this one center. It's incredible. Uh, last year, it was like 360 babies they saved. And these women give testimonials who come to the, uh, to the house and the organization. We provide barbecues for them. Every, every week they come and they have little social gatherings to familiarize themselves with other women that are in their same situation. And they can relate to them. It's almost like a support group. No, not almost. It is a support group for it. So that's the work that we're doing now in our organization and in, in our um, in our community and, and putting our efforts into that. And I thank my wife for that, Mary Ellen, who not only is a person who got me back to my faith when I met her 30 years ago, but also has shown me always, always in my life how to love and how to love more and love other people and, and to, you know, to help out in the communities. Um, like I said, I, don't, I always said, I don't think I've had an um, original thought, whether it be in, in my mind, whether it be in my profession, basketball or in life. God's blessed me with mentors in my life and people that he puts in my life that just try to point me in the right direction. And I think, you know, it's funny, we think about, and I'm getting on a little soapbox here, but we think about God talking to me. And I know I used to think about that. How does God, God doesn't talk to me. Well, maybe he doesn't, you don't hear that booming voice that you think you're, but he puts that thought, simple thought in your mind that you can't get out. Or he puts that person in your life that directs you a certain way, or he allows you to get into the situation which you might think is the most terrible situation in your life. But from that situation, you learn and you actually become closer maybe to him with your love. And I know in my worst situation with my, that tax situation years ago, with the thing, it was the most horrendous situation I've ever had in my life. But I know I got closer to my Lord and to my wife. And if I had to do it all over again, I'd do it all over again. So God speaks to us in so many different ways. And, uh, and he continues to, you know, with me and my wife, in different ways how to serve the community. That's that's so fantastic. Is there a website or a phone number or anything that you'd like to provide for, for, for that group in case people want to donate or find out more? Yes, it's called legacyoflifefoundation.org. Legacyoflifefoundation.org. Fantastic. Thank and you. Thank you, Jack. It's my pleasure. You know, we have to we have to make sure that we are, you know, extending that 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 olive branch, that that uh, that arm to the people who are doing so many good things and it's it's the simplest thing in my opinion to just be able to provide provide that platform for you for for the work that you do i i wish that you know I, I i wish i could do even more in in this moment um in in let me let me ask sean and sean real quick uh is there anything else in my insanity that you guys want to touch on you you want to say anything that that i missed because we all know that you know i have trouble dressing myself so I will, I, let me ask you guys. Think of anything. I mean, it took me two hours to put on a pair of pants this morning. So oh. <laughs> I get it. If, are we, are we, are we having a, are we having a contest about this or? <laughs> it's an Olympic sport. The, the two hour pants putting on. One hour per pant leg. Okay. That's math. That is math, baby. You don't need a calculus course for that. Um, Sean Goff, did I miss anything because of who I am? Oh, it's not you, no. I, okay. I think, uh, <laughs> no, I feel like anywhere else we go, we'd be on for another uh, two hours, which would be great. But. Yeah, we, we know that people have short attention spans, so. Exactly. Um, yeah. You've got to think about the audience. Right, yeah. 
Um, I got to think about lunch, so that's equally as important. <laughs> um, Steve, I, I cannot thank you enough. This has been a joy to, to have you on it, and, and a blessing. Um, I, I think I speak for Sean and Sean and for all of our organization uh, when, when we say how lucky we are that, that, you could, that you could join us today. And I wish you and, and, your, and your, your charitable work and your family and your church and everything, nothing but the best. Um, you know, I, I look forward to reading all the good stuff and I especially look forward to the light beer as I try and hit every golf cart that, that as, <laughs> and, and I will, I will ask one of the Sean's to please bring your phone with the camera so that we can, you know, make this memorable and put it on YouTube or something just because, oh. we, yeah, <laughs> we need that. Hey guys, seriously, it's, it's been a pleasure. Uh, it was nice speaking with you. Nice, nice meeting you via zoom. Seriously, someday, hopefully either one of you just let me know. Maybe we can get together the four of us and just play a little round of golf. And if not, just sit around and, as they say, chew the fat over a couple of beers. I would really enjoy that, guys. But thank you very much. It's always a joy. It really is to talk with you guys. Thank it's, you. It's, it's our pleasure, and you can be sure that we'll be you'll be hearing from us. So uh, thank you, Steve. Sean, Sean, thank you, as always, for all that you do for the podcast and for the organization. Uh, reminder to everybody, obviously, osafoundation.org, podcast at osafoundation.org, facebook.com slash osafoundation, Twitter and Instagram at osafoundation, hashtag how you play the game. Uh, we'll talk to everybody when uh, the calendar turns to May. And until then, everybody, please, please treat each other with respect. Amen. How You Play the Game is a production of the Osip Foundation, Incorporated. The producer-engineer of this episode is Sean Ryan. Music by SoundSpring Studio. The executive producer of How You Play the Game is Jack Furlong. For more information, visit osipfoundation.org.